To commemorate the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire, last week's episode discussed the Bellinger Cottage, one of the few homes on the north side to survive the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. This week we're going to discuss the other surviving home, the Ogden Mansion, and learn a little more about the person who once owned it, what happened to the area immediately after the fire, and what is on that site now. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Malin Dickerson Ogden and his older brother, William B. Ogden, grew up in the small town of Walton, New York, about 50 miles east of Binghamton. Malin, unusual name, was named for Malin Dickerson, who was a senator in New Jersey before becoming governor of New Jersey. Malin Ogden attended Trinity College in Geneva, New York, before heading west to Columbus, Ohio, where he studied law. Malin came to Chicago in 1836 and one year later married an Ohio woman named Henrietta in 1837. He and his wife would go on to have three children together before her death in 1852. In 1837, Malin's brother, William B. Ogden, became Chicago's first mayor, a position that only lasted one year back then. Side note, it wasn't until 1875 that Chicago's mayoral term was increased to two years, and then in 1907, the term of office was changed to four years. In Chicago, Malin Ogden formed a law partnership, and from 1839 to 1847 was one of the city's probate justices. He then became connected with the Northwestern Land Agency which was established by his brother, William. Malin was a member of numerous law firms throughout his life, but his wealth came from his real estate dealings. The Ogden brothers prospered in Chicago. William B. Ogden, in addition to his one-year run as mayor, was a leading promoter and key investor in the Illinois and Michigan Canal, then turned his attention toward developing railroad lines. William Ogden was a big supporter of the Transcontinental Railroad, discussed in episode 301 about Chicago's original Chinatown. A few years after the death of his first wife, Malin Ogden married his second wife, Frances, and together they had seven more children. Sadly, only three of those children lived past the age of five. The Ogdens were members of St. James Church, now St. James Cathedral, which was all but destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, but was rebuilt and still is in use today. Malin Ogden purchased the city block, yes, the whole city block bounded by Lafayette, later renamed Walton, to the south, Clark to the west, Oak Street to the north, and Dearborn to the east. And, according to A.T. Andreas's History of Chicago, the Ogden Mansion was built in 1859. Boy, when they say it is all about location, 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 the Ogden Mansion had it. Not only was it on an entire city block, but it also faced Washington Square Park, a 2.85-acre bit of land. Sweet digs. During the Great Chicago Fire, Malin Ogden and his family were not at home, but as flames approached the house, friends who were staying at the house along with staff, you guessed it, 
soaked any blankets, bed linens, carpets, or materials they could find and draped it on the roof and awnings to protect it from falling embers. Now, if you listen to the recent episode about the Bellinger Cottage, the ways people protected the houses were very similar. I even read that when the well ran dry, those at the Ogden House used hard cider from barrels in the basement. But honestly, I couldn't find any source material for that, so I'm disregarding it. What I can say is having Washington Square Park on one side of the house may have made all the difference, although the Unity, Unitarian, and New England congregational churches on the east side of Dearborn between Lafayette and Delaware Streets were both destroyed. Both churches and the Ogden Mansion all faced Washington Square Park, The Ogden Mansion was reportedly the only structure left standing for a nearly two-mile stretch. The October 17, 1871 New York Tribune included these lines about the Ogden Mansion escaping damage. Quote, The house of Mr. Malin Ogden, a large-frame building standing very near the street, is entirely untouched while the entire region around it is laid bare. Even the church across the street, which stands entirely detached, is destroyed. The escape of the Ogden Mansion is as complete and as mysterious as if it had worn an invisible coat of asbestos. Now, while it is true that the city of Chicago rebuilt after the fire at a pretty rapid pace, It may not have felt that way to countless homeless directly after the fire. With winter approaching and many of the nearly 100,000 homeless residents without the means to rebuild, an organization called the Relief and Aid Society built four communities of barracks in different parts of the city to house the homeless. There were also private shelter cottages that the society provided to more skilled workers and their families, but they were in short supply. In addition to barracks on Madison Street, Harrison Street, and Clybourne Avenue, barracks were also built in Washington Square Park across the street from Malin Ogden's mansion. All combined, the barracks for Chicago's poor housed 1,000 families, with each family, regardless of size, allotted two sparsely furnished rooms. On a Sunday in mid-November 1871, a Chicago Tribune reporter visited the four different barrack sites to inspect the premises. One of the key lines at the top of the column reads, quote, The buildings badly constructed and productive of sickness and distress among the inhabitants. Another reads, unsatisfactory drainage, defective floors and roofs, overcrowded apartments. Families as large as nine were squeezed into these spaces, which offered basic protection from winter chill and allowed very little privacy. Somehow the Washington Square Park barracks may have been the best of the ones offered. Each unit had a bed, sometimes a bunk bed, as well as a stove for cooking and heat. According to that Tribune article, quote, The floors, made of the poorest quality of rough boards, abound in great cracks through which the wind sucks up from beneath, neutralizing what little warmth the open lofts have allowed to remain. Dirty, squalid, half-clad children huddle about the small and only stove which, even on Sunday when the temperature was above the freezing point, 
utterly failed to supply a comfortable degree of warmth. According to the info I found, the barracks were in place from late 1871 to 1873. In 1874, the Relief Society offered a report on their efforts, maintaining that as housing the barracks were certainly adequate for the poor working people who occupied them, who, quote, were mainly of the class who had not hitherto lived in houses of their own, but in rooms in tenement houses. The report went on to state that such Chicagoans were, quote, undoubtedly very nearly, if not quite, as comfortable as they were before the fire, end quote, and since they were less crowded and under supervision of health officials and police, quote, their moral and sanitary condition were unquestionably better than that which they had heretofore obtained in that class, end quote. Uh, whether the health officials actually supervised much seems unlikely. The sweeping generalizations of the Relief Society. While he had been involved in being a lawyer and real estate most of his adult life, Malin Ogden did serve two years as alderman of the 19th Ward. Details were scant, but it appears that after surviving the Great Chicago Fire with his wealth relatively intact, Malin Ogden suffered significant losses in the financial panic of 1873, which was tied primarily to railroad speculation. Because of those losses, Ogden was forced to mortgage his property and move to a home in suburban Elmhurst, Illinois. For some time after Ogden moved out, Potter Palmer lived in the Ogden mansion, and then a group called the Union Club occupied it from roughly 1880 to 1883. The Union Club, not the Union League Club, which still exists today, was one of the many upscale clubs of Chicago back in the day. Regarding the Union Club's time at the Ogden Estate, according to an article in the 1890 Inter-Ocean newspaper in Chicago, quote, the extensive grounds serve for moonlight parties, lawn concerts, and later for tennis courts. These entertainments were unique and conspicuous for liberality, the concerts invariably attracting hundreds of uninvited guests who, however, were welcome to enjoy the music from the park opposite. Many a poor lover wooed the maid of his heart to royal music at the expense of the Union Club." End quote. Malin Ogden died in February of 1880 at the age of 68 in suburban Elmhurst, Illinois. His funeral was held at St. James Church, and he is buried at Graceland Cemetery. His brother, former Chicago Mayor William B. Ogden, had died three years earlier in 1877 at the age of 72 in Fordham Heights, New York, and was buried at the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. As for the land formerly occupied by the Ogden Mansion today, founded in July of 1887, the Newberry Library is an independently governed and funded research library created by a provision in the will of Chicago businessman Walter L. Newberry, who died at sea in 1868. Allegedly, those on board Newberry's ship when he died preserved his body in a large empty rum barrel until his remains could be brought back to Chicago and buried at Graceland Cemetery. I wish I had friends like that. Mine, I think, would have just pushed my body overboard. 
Newberry's bequest of $2.2 million, that's nearly $43 million in today's money, provided for the funding of a free public library on the north side of the Chicago River if his two daughters died without issue, which they did. After the death of Newberry's wife in 1885, the trustees of his estate, along with the guidance of Chicago cultural leaders, put his wishes in place. The trustees hired the Newberry's first librarian, William Frederick Poole, who had also served as the first librarian of the Chicago Public Library. Poole's story is too involved to get into today, but just know the guy lived and breathed being a librarian. Poole also sported the best facial hair. I'll post a picture of him on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages later this week. Under Poole's guidance, the Newberry purchased 25,000 books in its first 18 months and had a collection of approximately 120,000 volumes and 44,000 pamphlets by the end of Poole's tenure as librarian in 1894 when he died. From 1887 to 88, Newberry Library was located at 90 LaSalle Street, then from 1889 to 90 at 338 Ontario Street, and from 1890 to 1893 at the northwest corner of State and Oak Streets. The Newberry was officially incorporated under a new provision of Illinois state law in 1892. Now, when it came time to find a permanent home for the Newberry, there was a bit of upheaval. The only limitation Walter Newberry had put in his will regarding the site of the library was that it was to, quote, be located in that portion of the city of Chicago now known as the North Division, end quote. The trustees of Newberry's will hired a young architect named Henry Ives Cobb, who would go on to design numerous buildings around Chicago. Cobb then spent a year visiting libraries in the U.S. and in Europe, sweet gig if you can get it, before returning to Chicago. The trustees were determined to have the library built where the Newberry Homestead was. That was on the block bounded by Ohio to the south, Rush Street to the west, Erie to the north, and Pine Street to the east. This, by the way, was more than 25 years before Pine Street was renamed Michigan Avenue. Now, for those of you not familiar with the geography of Chicago, this block is right on what is now the Magnificent Mile. I think it would be kind of amazing to have a research library there, but instead we have a five-story, 35,000-square-foot Starbucks roastery on one corner, so there's that. Architect Cobb laid out his reasons why that location wouldn't work in a letter to the trustees. He stated all the libraries in Europe were centrally located so that people for whom it is intended could readily reach it. Cobb listed many of the libraries he visited and pointed out the good and bad of each location. One feature mentioned was having an open space in front of the building. Cobb discovered a 10-story apartment building was being built diagonally southwest from the Newberry Homestead, one that would take up a quarter of that block. The owner of the under-construction apartment building said that if it was a success, he would double the size of the building. Cobb went on to write that the most important of view is, quote, that of convenience to the majority of the people to whom Mr. Newberry left his great gift. 
Where do these people live, and where will they live 50 or 100 years from now? A few, perhaps 1%, will live east of State Street, but that 1% is liable to have many books of its own. The great mass of the people for whom the library is to be built will live west of State Street. Cobb wrote that as the Newberry Homestead lot at Erie and Rush was situated among several of the city's most expensive private homes and owned by, quote, people who would never consent to having horse-drawn cars run in front of their doors, and quote, making a library there difficult to access. Fortunately, head librarian W.F. Poole agreed with Cobb's assessment and the location of the permanent site of the Newberry Library was decided. It would be built on Ogden's block, right where Malin Ogden's mansion stood. Not that things went smoothly from there. According to the Newberry.org website, Librarian Poole and the architect Cobb, quote, disagreed vigorously about the arrangement of the interior spaces. Poole's vision won out, and as a consequence, the new structure contained smaller reading rooms with specific collections in close proximity to library staff possessing relevant expertise and did not include a central book stack. Cobb's Romanesque interior was built of pink granite from Branford, Connecticut, end quote. The new building opened in November of 1893. Newberry Library contains more than one and a half million books, five million manuscript pages, and 500,000 historic maps. There are also open spaces for gatherings. Some of you may have attended weddings and other events there. The Newberry's front doors face out over Washington Square Park, just as Malin Ogden's front doors did as well. W.F. Poole's letter to the trustees regarding the site of the permanent home of the library included this line, which I love, quote, The decision must be made not with reference to the needs of a library for a decade, a half century, or a century, but for all time, end quote. Nearly 128 years after the opening of the Newberry Library, I think Poole would be pleased. Thanks for listening to today's Chicago Fire-themed episode. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various books and movies about the Chicago Fire. If you'd like to learn more about this event, anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. 
learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.